chapter 117 of A History of England, entitled Confronting the Russian Bear. I'm David Beeson, and let's start with a powerful quotation. The French thought that the holy places ought to be guarded, probably against the Americans, by Latin monks, while the Turks, who owned the places, thought that they ought to be guarded by Greek monks. England therefore quite rightly declared war on Russia, which immediately occupied Romania. The war was consequently fought in the Crimea, near Persia. That's as neat a summary as any of the causes of the Crimean War, from the fantastic book 1066 and all that, which contains all the history most Englishmen can remember later in life. The holy places were in Jerusalem, then under the control of the Ottoman or Turkish Empire. The places were sacred to the two great wings of Christianity that had split eight centuries earlier between the Eastern or Orthodox, sometimes called Greek, and the Western or Catholic, sometimes called Latin, varieties, with the latter, of course, later split further when the many flavours of Protestantism broke away. Now, we've already seen that while Christians could be pretty nasty to other religions, they reserved their fiercest hatred for other Christians who differed, even in the faintest and most obscure way, from their approach to the faith. There'd been some nasty incidents in Jerusalem when the paths of Orthodox and Catholics had crossed, occasionally leaving dead behind, while the local Muslim authorities tried to get these Christians to love their neighbours, or at least turn the other cheek. The most powerful nation championing orthodoxy was Russia. Its ruler, Tsar Nicholas I, saw himself as the protector of the orthodox everywhere, and not just in Jerusalem. In particular, he presented himself as the defender of those who were subjects of the Ottomans, many of them Slavs, like himself, in various parts of the Balkans, such as Serbia, part of which was ruled by the Ottoman Empire, Bulgaria, or the two principalities that now make up most of Romania, Moldavia and Wallachia, which were under tenuous Ottoman control. On the face of it, you might feel that the Tsar had some justification based on religion or culture. But you should bear in mind that between 1686 and 1829, Russia went to war seven times against Turkey, emerging with a lot more territory including a nice new coastline on the Black Sea that it didn't have before. It's probably no coincidence that land grabs accompanied religious or cultural advantages, sincerely pursued though they may have been, from the many fights Russia picked with Turkey. Success in this nearly century-and-a-half-long series of wars against the Ottomans gave Russia quite a military reputation, one strongly reinforced by its extraordinary achievements against Napoleon's invasion of 1812. The Russians had all but wiped out France's 600,000-strong invading army, making the French emperor's overthrow inevitable. The West was grateful for the help Russia's huge military power provided, although it was also just a bit afraid of the power itself. Something similar happened closer to our own times in the Cold War. In World War II, Russia, as the Soviet Union, put a huge power in the field to defeat Nazi Germany, and the Western nations were grateful for the help, but frightened of the power. In the Cold War, the talk in the West might have all been about communism, but the fear was just the age-old one of the Russian bear. The bear was particularly frightening because it had the world's largest army of a million men. 
That number, however, veiled the fact that its officers were picked for their aristocratic connections, not for their military skill. Logistics were a shambles, so the men were often poorly fed and inadequately supplied. Many were badly trained and their weapons were outdated, in particular their muskets, weapons of poor range and accuracy, more often used with bayonets fixed as a thrusting spear than as a proper firearm. So here's a quiz question. What's familiar about all that? Badly trained and supplied Russian troops with inadequate leadership? If you answered, it reminds me of Russia's 2022 invasion of Ukraine, give yourself a gold star. The apprehension among the Western powers was real, however. Britain, for instance, gave way to a wave of Russophobia. An immensely helpful book on the Crimean War is simply called Crimea by the historian Orlando Figes. He quotes Lord Hatesbury, the British ambassador in St. Petersburg, who declared that the Sultan would soon become as submissive to the orders of the Tsar as any of the princes of India to those of the East India Company. As Figes points out, Hatesbury seems to have been completely unaware of the irony of a Brit attacking Russia for doing to Turkey what, as he admits himself, Britain was already doing to India. Figes also quotes the British newspaper The Standard, attacking government inactivity towards Russia. It is of little use to watch Russia if our care and exertion are to end with that exercise of vigilance. We have been watching Russia during eight years, and within that time she has pushed her acquisitions and military posts nearly 2,000 miles on the road to India. With hindsight, it seems unlikely Russia ever had serious designs on India. But we've seen before that Britain feared it did. That gave a concrete basis for the country's growing concerns about the empire in the east. Things, it was felt, could be about to turn nasty. In the spring of 1853, that's just what things did. Nicholas I had described Turkey as the sick man of Europe, a declining power which ought to be dispatched as quickly as possible by the great powers who could divide its territories between them, a deal which would no doubt have seen Russia emerge on top. He now took steps to make that happen. He sent an ultimatum to the Sultan in Constantinople to authorise him officially to become the protector of the interests of the Ottoman Empire's Christian subjects. That would have meant giving up control of 14 million people, so, to no one's surprise, the Sultan refused. Nicholas I responded in June 1853 by moving forces into the Balkan principalities of Moldavia and Wallachia, ostensibly to protect the Christian population. But when, in July, the Russians began to change the system by which the principalities were governed, bells started ringing in a lot of foreign capitals. This felt less like simple protection and more like the preliminaries to full annexation of the territories to the Russian Empire. We've seen before that there was still plenty of mutual suspicion between Britain and France, but this new threat from the East began to force them to work together against it. At the same time, however, and despite the general Russophobia in the country, the British government was divided over how to respond. It split generally, though with some exceptions, between the old Whigs from the Liberal Party, who favoured war, and the Peelites in the coalition, who wanted to give diplomacy a chance. Palmerston, very much an old-style Whig, was Home Secretary, 
But he still held strong views on foreign affairs, and, as when he'd been foreign secretary, they tended to be hawkish. He was strongly in favour of taking military action with the French against Russia. Despite their many differences and their intense rivalry, Lord John Russell was with him on this question, as were most of the other former Whigs. The Peelites, such as Prime Minister Aberdeen himself, were more cautious. Many had rather mixed feelings about such a war in any case. Men like Aberdeen, an Anglican Conservative, wasn't sure about going to war for Muslim Turks against Christian Russians. Gladstone, a deeply convinced evangelical Protestant, was even less so. To wage such a war smacked too much of realpolitik, the political approach that subordinated principles, however deeply held, to national interest, which, as we've seen before, was very much Palmerston's position. Aberdeen initially got his way and diplomatic efforts continued. However, he agreed to a British fleet joining the French and travelling to the Dardanelles, the beginning of the narrow waterway that links the Mediterranean and Black Seas, ready to support Constantinople if needed. By October 1853, with diplomacy getting nowhere, Turkey decided that it had put up with enough. It declared war and sent troops to the Danube to confront the Russians in Moldavia and Wallachia. And then something happened that few commentators expected. The Turkish army was no more efficiently organised or more effectively led than the Russian. It turned out, however, to be no worse either. The Russians kept losing engagements and, even when they won, were unable to break through the Turkish lines. Indeed, things were so bad that within a 12-month, half the 80,000 men Russia had sent into Moldavia and Wallachia were dead, though it lost most of them to disease or inept treatment of wounds rather than in combat. That was on land. At sea, however, the Russian advantage was huge. That was proved when Russian ships engaged a Turkish squadron in Sinop Bay on Turkey's northern coast on the Black Sea. The Turkish ships were destroyed. That might have been seen as legitimate since the two countries were at war, but then the Russian ships kept bombarding the shattered remnants of the Turks, killing sailors on disabled ships unable to return fire. They also bombarded the town, killing hundreds of civilians. That was seen as excessive by other nations. However bad it was, the British press indulged itself in some fake news to make it seem far worse. One paper ran lurid stories about the murder of 4,000 civilians. There was an outcry throughout the country over the Sinop Massacre, as it came to be known. Palmerston had resigned from the government, ostensibly because it was backing an initiative by John Russell for further reform of the electoral system, something which Palmerston deeply opposed. In fact, the government was backing Russell to prevent him resigning. Throughout his career, Russell was constantly threatening to resign, and letting him ride on his reform hobby horse was a way to stop him going. But it gave Palmerston his excuse to resign. In reality, what he wanted to do was just to leave government so that he could criticise it from outside over its Russia policy, which he proceeded to do. The public loved him. More fake news began to flow. Many claimed that Victoria's foreign husband, Prince Albert, he was German, was a traitor and he'd forced Palmerston out of office. 
when rumours spread that he was due to be incarcerated in the Tower of London, a crowd turned out to watch him being delivered to the prison gates. The morning advertiser newspaper went so far as to call for his execution. Orlando Figes quotes it, arguing that it was better that a few drops of guilty blood should be shed on a scaffold on Tower Hill than that a country should be balked of its desire for war. Victoria was furious and even threatened to abdicate. There was no stopping the clamour in the British press for military action, however, in what was to be the first occasion when public opinion was a major factor in driving Britain towards war. The pressure was mounting on the Aberdeen government. The press, the public, that loudmouthed Palmerston and his friends, the French. In fact, the French told Britain that it was time for the two countries to respond to aggressive Russian action in the Black Sea, and if Britain wouldn't join them, they'd do it alone. That was the final straw. The enemy was Russia, but France, as always, was the rival. Allowing the pesky French to steal a march on Britain was a red line Aberdeen simply couldn't allow them to cross. France and Britain agreed to send their fleets together into the Black Sea to protect Turkish shipping. Having got his way, Palmerston returned to the government on Christmas Eve, just ten days after he'd resigned from it. Against the more cautious members of the cabinet, led by the Prime Minister himself, and with the public increasingly backing him, Palmerston argued against limiting the war to shoring up Turkey, and for extending it into a much wider war to bring the Russian Empire to its knees and draw its sting once and for all. Aberdeen was still trying to resist. The day before Britain's declaration, he told the Queen and Prince Albert that he was being dragged into war by Palmerston, the press and the public. But the pressure was too much for him, the resistance too weak. On the 27th of March, 1854, Britain declared war against Russia. The following day, the French Empire did the same. The dogs of war were off the leash and heading, though they didn't yet know it, for the Crimea. As for the holy places in Jerusalem, the ostensible reason for all the fuss, no one was talking about them anymore. Now things were all about the survival of Turkey and the protection of the rights of the Western powers. And that meant muzzling the Russian bear. Next week, we can start to find out how that went. Thanks for listening. Yeah.